I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Zoe Tillman. She is the legal correspondent for BuzzFeed News and has been covering the lawsuits that the Trump campaign has waged uh, against the electorate. Welcome, Zoe. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Zoe, what now in the aftermath of the Electoral College vote, which officially made Joe Biden the president-elect, what is the um, current status, the win-loss column for the Trump campaign in terms of all these lawsuits that he's filed? It, it depends on how you want to count them. Um, but Mark Elias, who is the lawyer leading Democrats' legal opposition to all the election challenges, has been keeping a running tally, and that seems to be the number everyone is using. Um, so as of now, they are at one win and 59 losses. And that number doesn't include appeals that they've lost. It's really sort of the number of cases, roughly, that have been brought since November 3rd and where judges have ruled against both the president's campaign and state Republican parties and other Republican challengers out there, supporters of the president who have tried to go to court. Um, so there are cases still pending, notwithstanding the Electoral College's vote. Trump is still pursuing litigation. His allies are still pursuing litigation, but their track record is uh, poor to say the least. And um, it doesn't appear that any of the cases that are left really have any chance of winning, let alone, you know, really changing Biden's win at this point. One of the things that frustrates me, uh, and you probably relate to this covering the beat so closely, is that the Trump campaign and the folks you were alluding to, the Cong Republican congressmen, legislators, they were seeking a legal means for an illegal or extrajudicial outcome. They were, they were seeking to overturn the votes of people um, with no evidence of any wrongdoing, fraud. Um, but, but really what they were waging was not a legal campaign. It was an illegal campaign. And, and I wonder if you might reflect on that. You know, it's, it's interesting um, to think about the evolution of these, these lawsuits and I think how they came to align more with what you're talking about, this idea that they're, they're trying to use the courts for a purpose that just isn't what the courts are for or really you know, should be. The, the courts don't want to be in the business of deciding elections. So you know, the first few weeks, we did see more of your garden variety election challenges. You know, On election day, there were concerns about uh, tech failures and you need to go to court to make sure the polls can stay open later. That's certainly a thing that happens every election. There were concerns about uh, poll observer access. And although that sort of changed over time to become a claim that fit more in the bucket of wild conspiracies with no foundation, you know, on election day, some Republican poll watchers felt like because of COVID restrictions, they couldn't get close enough to the action. And so they went to court to try and get some relief on that front. You know, so the, the cases we were seeing weren't really outside the norm. Um, perhaps there were more and, and higher stakes than we were used to seeing. Um, but then it really, you know, once it became clear that Biden had won, that's when you started to see this idea of, you know, there's 
widespread voter fraud. Again, there's no proof of that, but this theory of a conspiracy and there's computer software from Venezuela that's being altered to rig the election for Biden, you know, and, and the vehicle that they had to push those was litigation, um, even though that's not really what the courts were supposed to be for. So I think we saw over time a change from what we would ex really expect to see. There's always legal action around an election, um, but then it became this, this venue for them to make these, these wild claims um, and, and give them sort of a, a sheen or veneer of legitimacy by saying, you know, we're presenting them to the judge. Um, there must be some there there, uh, but there really wasn't. Right, and I think that in the legal community and even in the broader political community, these suits have been described as frivolous, uh, but I don't think that that emphasizes their anti-democratic or autocratic authoritarian function, which was to ultimately overturn the will of the people because there was no evidence of fraud, let alone widespread fraud. They were asking for certain votes, democratic votes not to be counted. And the, the what it really appeared like ultimately is that that the Trump campaign was trying to sue democracy to death in effect. And I'm wondering from your coverage and having seen the lawyers who represented Donald Trump and the charges that they be punished for violating um, norms and order, um, to what extent is it the consensus in the legal community and maybe even among people who once represented Trump and withdrew their affiliation with the campaign, that this was um, political, this was an attempt to stifle free and fair elections, and um, this was not. This did not have any legal basis. In fact, it it, it could have been just as I described, more of an illegal pursuit than a legal pursuit? So I think taking a few steps back, you know, there are generally speaking a few ways that lawyers can be punished for what they do in court, right? I mean, you can file a complaint with their bar association. Um, it's a very high bar, no pun intended, um, to get disciplinary action in that way, um, you know, the legal community regulates itself. Lawyers are often wary of, you know, throwing their own under the bus. Um, so, you know, it's possible that members of the public, you know, could file bar complaints against, say, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer in, in several cases, or Sidney Powell, the conservative attorney who has brought. Uh, other cases and has sort of been distanced from the Trump campaign. She's the one who said, we're going to release the Kraken and then filed a series of lawsuits that judges just resoundingly rejected. Um, so, you know, we could see some kind of bar disciplinary action if uh, investigators are willing to pursue that and, and can see sort of a, a way of getting in there. Um, uh, there are ways that lawyers can be sanctioned by judges in court. Um, it's called Rule 11, just sort of a catch-all rule that says you cannot use the courts to, for any improper purpose, to harass, to cause delays, uh, you know, otherwise abuse the system. 
So it's, it seems very broad, but at the same time, it's not used very often. It's a pretty extreme thing to happen. And I, I don't know how much appetite there's going to be among the bar and on the bench once this is all over to, to drag this out um, and, you know, continue these cases on and, and get into all of that. So, you know, whether there could be some kind of punishment for what's happened, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's an unusual thing to see, but um, these cases are certainly unusual and extreme um, and anything is possible has been sort right. of the rule of the past month. So who knows? I think you're, you're right to use the word extreme. And again, unlike the more normal election cases, which usually are filed only when the margin is so slim, the margin was not clear because of Republican legislatures that forced election officials to count after, to count absentee or mail ballots after uh, regular ballots in several of these states. But when it, when it comes to this question of punishment of lawyers and the independence of the judiciary, which, which but Vice President, now President-elect Biden identified in criticizing President Trump's, what he called an assault on democracy uh, by, by the support for the Texas suit to overturn other states, votes. Uh, did you see in your coverage here the difference between the independence of the bar lawyers and the independence or impartiality of judges? In many cases, these are lifetime appointees and not elected officials in assessing who, who was um, prepared to judge things truthfully, factually. Did you see a difference in, in the way lawyers were responding to this um, on behalf of the Trump campaign and then how Republican appointed or conservative judges were responding? What's really been remarkable about this period of litigation is the not just the number of judges who have rejected these challenges, which are you know each unique in their own way. They are sometimes state specific, they're county specific, they're alleging different claims under different laws or the U.S. Constitution. So it's not just the number of judges, but it it's all the different types of judges. We've seen state court judges, elected judges, federal judges with lifetime appointments, um, judges who are Republican, judges who are Democrats, uh, judges at the district court level, judges at the appellate level, Trump's own judicial nominees um, have in several cases ruled against the president. And, um, you know, I think that's been really striking, especially thinking back before the election when there was quite a lot of litigation over the expansion of mail-in voting during the pandemic this year. And we saw conservative judges splitting with their more liberal colleagues in favor of limiting mail-in voting. And there was more of a, a political divide, I think, or a, maybe political is the wrong word, an ideological divide on the bench in how to think about uh, election practices this year, who was siding with Republican legislators who were trying to limit mail-in voting versus uh, Democratic challengers trying to expand it. So you did see more of those lines drawn in the ways that we would expect. After the election, all of that is out the window and judges of all ideological stripes have said, no, uh, this is not what courts are for. 
uh, assuming they've even made it past that threshold stage, the judges are looking at the evidence and just finding it not credible at all. Um, and they're going in some cases a few steps farther and writing these very um, sweeping declarations of what the courts are for. You know, at that point, they're not really writing for the lawyers, they're writing for the public. And they're saying, we are applying the rule of law. We do not decide elections. This is not the function of the judiciary. I think there's a bit of judges stepping up to reassert their independence and, and draw a line in the sand and say, you know, you may see us as politicized in many respects, but on this front, they have been just united in saying this is, we are not going to decide an election. And the United States Supreme Court was indeed unanimous in turning down the Texas suit. Um, there was this debate about whether the court should have more vociferously, um, vehemently denied the, the order um, and condemned it. Uh, instead, it was just a rejection, um, and the you know the the potential for more Supreme Court cases is is unlikely at this point, and and it and it did seem time to be decided um, as as a preface to the um, certification and vote of the electors. But as someone who's read a lot of court decisions at various levels over these past months. Um, what was your um, instinct about the, the court's position on, on this and, and specifically whether or not the court would, would more directly um, call out what the Texas suit was, which, which it did not do, it just rejected it. Right. I, you know, I think it really was in keeping with what you would expect to see from the Supreme Court, or at least this Supreme Court in a case like this. You know, the case was uh, not, not filed in the normal course of business. It wasn't fully briefed. It wasn't argued on the merits. You know, that's when we really expect to see a, a full opinion from the court. In this case, it was such an unusual action to begin with, brought up on an emergency basis on the eve of the electoral college vote. Um, you know, so there wasn't a whole lot for the court to, to say. I mean, they, they could do whatever they wanted and, and judges could have certainly, or justices could have written separately to express their thoughts and opinions on what had happened. But, you know, at this stage, it was really a question of, can they even do this? And it, nothing else really mattered. The merits didn't matter. The, the arguments in favor of, of taking the extraordinarily extreme step of halting and undoing election results in four other states, all of that was sort of secondary to this question of, could Texas even do this? And as most lawyers expected, the court just said, no, it didn't really need to get into anything else. And this is a court that is extremely, um, aware of the damage to its public reputation that the ruling in Bush v. Gore did back in 2000, where you know the court really did decide an election. They stopped the recount in Florida. That made George W. Bush president. And it, I think, damaged 
the court's reputation for, I mean, I think people still talk about it and they still talk about, you know, the court stepping in to put its thumb on the scales and the justices are acutely aware of that. And I think it made sense thinking about that context for them to simply knock it out, out of the gate and not get involved any more than it absolutely needed to. And play the long game, which has been commented on, which is uh, this social conservative majority of the court uh, is not in favor of, at least ostensibly, of authoritarianism or autocracy in the sense of undoing or overturning a duly conducted election, free and fair election, uh, but does have extreme tendencies on several issues in what could be the new modern day norms of the United States. And so they sought to legitimize their new 6-3 disequilibrium and um, in favor of of the conservatives, in favor of what is on many issues a minoritarian um, opinion, um, ruling for the country. Um, And so they were probably keenly aware of that as you anticipate covering finally non-election cases, uh, what what cases do you think they will be most primely positioned to assert what might be perceived as newfound legitimacy just because they didn't want to overturn an American election? Well, listen, I mean, the, the beauty of lifetime tenure is you're not really answerable or accountable to the political forces of the day. And justices, I think it's just important to say that, you know, justices surprise us all the time. Um, They evolve over time. You know, I think sometime years ago, if you had said Chief Justice John Roberts will be siding with the liberals in key cases to rule against a Republican White House, I think people would have, um, you know, thought you were, maybe not that knowledgeable about John Roberts and his ideological background. So, you know, it's, it's always hard to know what justices will do once they're on the bench. Um, but I think that said, it's certainly fair to say that Republican state attorneys general, um, Republican advocates, especially, you know, religious liberty, religious freedom groups are very ready to sue the Biden administration over whatever it is they they do when they take office on January 20th. And those are going to be big political fights over exercises of executive power, attempts to roll back what the Trump administration did, um, figuring out what to do about all the pending cases that are left over from the Trump administration. These are all going to be areas of possible litigation um, that could work their way up to the Supreme Court, which is, you know, certainly certainly has a conservative majority, um, certainly has justices, a majority of justices who, um, you know, are socially conservative. If there is, you know, another push to try and chip away at the protections of Roe v. Wade and abortion access, uh, the court's current makeup is such that, you know, I think anti-abortion advocates will feel you know, more comfortable trying to take these cases up now and seeing what they can accomplish. So, you know, I, I think we're expecting a lot of litigation to come against the new administration. And, um, you know, I, I think 
things will just go back to business as usual, where the the party who's not in power will sue the party in power and, you know, do what they can to try and convince the judges and justices that they're correct. Zoe, final question. What what stands in strong contrast to the Supreme Court's unanimous decision to reject the Texas suit was uh, the hotly contested Wisconsin Supreme Court deciding 4-3 in what, again, was viewed by anyone in a fact-based universe to be a a frivolous suit um, that would seek to deny a lot of voters their rights and and, um, discount their votes. Was Wisconsin the outlier this year in the federal and state Supreme Court cases as they were decided um, in being very close to potentially, you know, seeking to overturn or, or overrule the voters. Um, and and it, it is worth noting that those are elected judges, I believe, um, in contrast to the appellate courts or the Supreme Court lifetime appointments. Uh, so was that, was that a contrast to the vast majority of other state Supreme Court and appellate level decisions, um, which seemed very strongly for the voters and against these attempts to overrule the voters? What I would say is that the case that went up in Wisconsin was both similar to what the campaign and Trump supporters were trying to do in that it was asking a court to take a very extreme step in undoing an election, you know, weeks after the fact. Um, but I do think it was different in that it the merits of the case were more like the cases we saw before the election. You know, this, despite all the rhetoric about, you know, there was fraud and widespread fraud and machines were hacked and et cetera, et cetera, that the case was not about that. It was about, you know, uh, how election officials had run specific parts of the election, how they were handling absentee ballots during the pandemic, um, having an outdoor democracy in the park event where people could bring in their absentee ballots, you know, whether these were really in keeping with what Wisconsin election law said about what was allowed for absentee ballots. And, you know, before the election, we certainly saw judges say, no, you can't use drop boxes. Um, you know, no, you cannot send absentee ballots to every registered voter in the state, in the state. You know, I think in that sense, what the Republican justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court were, were open to considering those who were in the minority, you know, were in one sense in line with, with the types of decisions we saw from Republican judges before the election. I think what's unusual is that they seemed willing to entertain a case like this so far after the election and seemed open to the idea of revisiting an election that had already happened. And, you know, I think in that sense, it was unusual. Um, The majority of the justices, you know, didn't get to the merits. They said, this fails because you've just waited too long. You know, you're challenging things that happened weeks, decisions and, and actions that happened weeks and months leading up to the election. You, know, you can't just wait to see what happens weeks after the election and then go to court and try and undo the will of the voters. Um, so, you know, I think it's in some sense a harbinger of probably what's to come. You know, if we see states trying to formalize 
mail-in voting practices that were adopted on some kind of emergency basis during the pandemic. You might see Republican legislatures using what happened as a, a jumping off point to try and roll back voting rights protections or, or rein in ways of expanding voter access. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling was so unusual in that sense. I think it reflected more of a real split among Republicans and Democrats at the state level about, you know, how to let people vote. Zoe Tillman, thank you so much for your insight today. Happy to be here.